Well, Mike, most of the court cases that we have followed here on Left in the Law center on charges against big oil and their role in poisoning the planet. Today, we take up the South Africa case before the International Court of Justice at The Hague, charging Israel with genocide, as well as a federal case against the Biden administration here in the U.S., charging Biden officials with aiding genocide. I'd like to start with the California case um, and with testimony by Mohammed Herzala, one of the plaintiffs in that suit that is moving forward in federal court in Oakland. Quote, we have lost so many people, but there are still many more who are living and we owe it to them to do everything possible to stop this genocide. I've done everything in my power I've participated in protests, sit-ins, wrote letters to my representatives, civil disobedience. Now I am asking the courts to end this ongoing genocide, unquote. Well, for the hundreds of thousands of people protesting this war here in the U.S. and around the world, Herzala's grief-stricken testimony resonates deeply, as does his moral urgency in calling the court to intervene. So, Mike, let's start with that case in the federal court in California with charges of aiding Israel, U.S. aiding Israel in its genocidal assault on Gazans. Is the 1948 Genocide Convention the basis of this case in the same way it's been cited in the South African case? Well, yes, it is. It was filed by the Center for Constitutional Rights and was heard before Judge Jeffrey White in Oakland in a remarkable session. I mean, the lawsuit tracks the South African case in that it presents first evidence of Israel's emerging genocide against Palestinians. It puts in as evidence the uh, use of starvation and dehydration as weapons of warfare. You know, Israel is essentially running a prison of, with more than two million people residing in it. They control the flow of food, of water, of everything except air. And complaint in, in Oakland not only notes that, it notes, of course, all the destruction, the bombs. There have been like 12 cemeteries destroyed, residential property. And of course, every public building is being bombed day by day. The death toll rises. I know the complaint was filed in November. It says the Palestinian death toll was has risen to 11,000. Now it's way more than double that. Yeah, I, I was struck in reading this 89-page document, much like the very long one, similar length by the South Africa team, and how much both of them lay out a deep and long history, which I guess is part of the argument of sustained genocidal intent, uh, going back to the Nakba of 1948, and both of them are riveting reads and instructive reads on the, on the history of Israel's treatment and military assaults on Palestine. I've learned a lot from reading these briefs. They're both phenomenally well-written which I rarely say about a legal complaint. <laughs> Having written many of them yourself. So well, how would you compare the two? Obviously, the International Court of Justice is the highest court within the United Nations, has a much bigger world stage than the case that's based in the federal court in Oakland. Let's start with the federal case here and the significance of it 
and the Biden administration's grounds for seeking a dismissal of the case. Well, I originally had little hopes for this federal case. I mean, people file federal cases all the time, but unlike the South African case, where not only is there a world stage, but you're also, they go straight to the merits. The issue is, are they committing genocide? And what are the grounds? What are the evidence? What are the arguments for? What are the arguments against? But in federal court, I would expect this case to be tossed out on grounds that it raises a political question. Courts are traditionally supposed to deal with judicial issues, and they're not found to have jurisdiction over uh, what are called political questions. And that's the Biden administration's argument for dismissal. Yeah, and in Oakland, they're not saying we don't, we never committed, we don't support, we're not complicit in genocide. They're saying you don't have any jurisdiction to decide this case. But the U.S. has stripped itself in a way by its strong advocacy of the application of international law against Vladimir Putin and the whole Ukrainian efforts in the, within the effort to hold Russia accountable and specifically the president of Russia, for what's going on there. And they have relied on international law principles, which I rely on in my death penalty cases. Uh, there are called Jus Kogans. There are principles and rules. There are treaties to which we have signed and sworn to follow that do apply. And what the complainants are saying in Oakland is that if you really believe this and pay attention to the language of these treaties to which you have sworn allegiance and sworn that you would follow, you must acknowledge you're being complicit in genocide now. And the judge, Jeffrey White, has been remarkably supportive of this lawsuit. He's 78 years old now, which to me says he's much more free to do what he wants to do because he no longer has a career to develop. His career is what it is. You're familiar with this judge through your own cases? Well, actually, yes. Uh, he, he presides over one of my death penalty cases, and he hasn't really been fabulous at all. But he has been fabulous in this case. He's allowed testimony, which he did not have to do. He has allowed really moving testimony, and he's allowed that testimony to be live streamed so people can see people testify like plaintiff Omar al-Najjar testified from a hospital in Gaza. He says, I have nothing but my grief. This is what Israel and its supporters have done to us. Uh, they've put in testimony from Palestinian Americans with relatives in Palestine who have lost 60, 80 family members. They've uh, put in really touching, really affecting testimony. And um, he allowed this live streaming to go out to a thousand people on Zoom, and it was oversubscribed. And now it has been captured, so you can go to Truthout and other places and watch it. And that's, he didn't have to do any of that. That was his description. I don't think that he to, he's not going to find Joe Biden complicit in genocide, but he is allowing the case to be made. And in the final events, you know, courts do not have troops and machine guns at their disposal. They really are an effective way of amplifying and expressing public opinion. And what has happened in that federal court has been far more than I had thought could ever be allowed to happen in a district court. I had a, um, there are a few points made 
in the amicus brief that I wanted to ask you to comment on because there are points I have not seen in any other cases or commentary. And they're in response to Israel's claim that their military actions are a form of self-defense and the Biden administration's support of that same argument. This is from the brief, quote, Israel sustained military hostilities and assaults against Palestinians even when alleged to be self-defense, breach fundamental principles of international law. As the occupying power, Israel cannot both exercise control over territory it occupies, the occupied Palestinian territory, including Gaza, and simultaneously militarily attack that territory on the claim that it is a foreign or imputable or imputable to a foreign state. Well, what do you think about that argument? Well, it should be made because they're treating Hamas as if they were some sort of general power equivalent to like Russia or Bolivia or some state, when actually Hamas is a group that they themselves financed for years because they were worried about the secular left as represented by the Palestinian Authority. This is a group of people who are, they're in some ways, they're crazy, as are the present people running Israel. And the people who are running Israel now would have been regarded as kooks 30 years ago, but now they are in mainstream power and the most extreme Zionist visions of gobbling up territory to the west and to the south are in full flight right now. And that many of their statements have been quoted by both these lawsuits about how they want to make it impossible to make everybody voluntarily move to uh, lay waste to everything. These kind of statements have been made, not just occasionally an immediate reaction to what happened on October 7th, but systematically making these statements days after, and even statements before they were made by Israel. So the this particular legal point is a sound one. I mean, you, how can they say that Hamas is a foreign power when the, Hamas is however dreadful they are in their ideology, and however unpopular to Israel now, they are the ones who actually initiated this, and they were selected by Gazans. That's why I think many people in Israel say everyone is complicit, even babies and mothers, because they have all, and in some senses, there is some logic to what they're saying, because anyone with any spirit living in a prison is going to think about breaking out. And the people in Gaza have been essentially incarcerated since 2007, periodically bombed. I mean, there is a really touching movie on Netflix called Born in Gaza, which was made by a Spaniard in 2014, just after the last round of bombing. And it's children, mostly eight and nine-year-olds with the feature, walking through rubble, unending rubble, the destruction of neighborhoods and concrete buildings. And they're wondering about the people they saw killed in front of them, relatives. And some of the kids want to like disappear into the sea. They want to, others want to join the resistance. There's a range of thinking ahead that would be typical of any eight or nine year old. And you and, know, now there are, I don't know if it's a majority, but a significant number of journalists and media reporters have been killed or have had to flee Gaza. And so there are fewer and fewer reports coming out of Gaza. And so this, it makes this trial, uh, I mean, it makes the case before 
the judge in Oakland particularly important given given the strangling that Israel sustained strangling of reporting out of Gaza. You're right. That's a very important point. It's almost impossible now to get direct reports live on the ground. Israel does not allow that to happen. They have strict controls over what electronic vibrations can leave Gaza and what can enter. And they are exercising those control. And the case is not at all frivolous. I mean, Israel has announced its genocidal assault and Biden and his officials have expressed unconditional support. They supply all the 2,000-pound bombs. They have closely coordinated with Israeli officials. They've pledged and provided tons of military financial assistance, as well as lots of equipment. And, and also support through bases in the area. Yes. So what is the likely course of a case like this? It, it was good that the judge kept it before the rejected i don't know if that was a one-time or ongoing process of reviewing the biden administration's call for dismissal it is going forward now what's the likely course of this case well the plaintiffs have asked for a preliminary injunction they've said it's so obvious so powerful and such irreparable harm is being done that we need to uh, stop it now now that's not going to fly but it all depends on I think, how much more evidence gathering the judge will allow to happen. I mean, he can, there's going to be a motion to dismiss filed and ruled on. And if the case is dismissed, then it will go up to the Ninth Circuit and essentially will disappear given the time limit, the t what's going on in Gaza now and the pressures internationally. This is going to resolve itself one way or another before the Ninth Circuit ever makes a final decision. But well, we let Go ahead. Do you want to make some final comments? I guess my final comment is we've squeezed a lot of juice out of this lawsuit. It's had a profound effect on all kinds of people. It continues to be shown and observed. And um, it's not at all a frivolous lawsuit. I would not expect much more to come from it, but I have hope that there can be like something like an evidentiary hearing. But I doubt it. I suspect this court will uh, finally withdraw on the grounds that this is, after all, something to be decided by the executive branch of government and not by the courts. And then there's the January 26th ruling by the International Court of Justice. Interestingly enough, the president at this point is an American, <laughs> and the ruling was considered pretty favorable given predictions of what the court would do, that it ordered Israel to do all it can to prevent death, destruction, and any acts of genocide in Gaza, which, and they have to report to the court. Of course, Israel is, quote, rejects this with disgust that it's blood libel spread by South Africa. They make a lot of, try to get a lot of currency out of that old anti-Semitic trope. What do you think about this ruling? And, you know, the, the final decision takes years. So it's how, how this plays out in any horizon of time that's going to make a difference to all of these people dying daily in Gaza. Well, they don't have any more guns than do the federal courts of uh, the United States. So they cannot stop Israel. 
but it did the court did order Israel to prevent and to not commit genocidal acts. It's supposed to punish any public incitement to commit genocide. It ordered Israel to ensure the provision of humanitarian aid to keep people alive. It ordered Israel to preserve evidence related to allegations of genocide and to submit a compliance report within one month. So I thought it was a pretty fabulous ruling. But Israel's already pretty flagrantly defying that ruling. What are the consequences of that? Of course they will. But these orders will, um, they stop short of ordering a ceasefire, but they did order all sorts of compliant efforts and efforts to respond back to the court and to stay in touch with the court. We'll see how it goes. It's had a profound effect all over the world. It's been featured in every news site on this planet. And the South African brief was, as you noted earlier, they made it clear that October 7th did not emerge from like, it wasn't just an expression of unutterable evil coming out of nowhere, that there had been a long history, that those Palestinians who live in Gaza weren't born there, they were chased there by Israelis, that they went all the way back to 1948, and particularly to the years since 2007, when Israel withdrew and essentially Gaza became a prison camp and what it's been like living in a prison camp. So there was also a, quite a bit of history on strategies of peaceful protest. The first intifada and then the second intifada was violent in a way that registered the failure of serious peace negotiations and young kids who have been arrested and rounded up for very minor infractions and encounter with IDF members and Israeli police. So the, the history of this, there's always this question of how you either justify violence or explain it. And I think a lot of social scientists try to explain how forms of violence emerge among the oppressed when other actions fail. Well, of course, it's very easy for some people to conflate explanation with justification. We want to explain things. Everything has roots, causes, forces that tend to make it happen. And efforts to explain that are not always, although they can be, an effort to justify. We are operating in a world where cause and effect is not the, they're both slippery concepts, but um, what the uh, South African brief did was it made it very clear that these acts, which Israel begins every discussion of this war with on October 7th, did not happen in a void. So we'll continue to follow these cases, both the South Africa case before the the International Court of Justice in The Hague, and the one here in California. I think both of them suggest or register something about the broader social movement of identification with Palestinian struggle, with the oppression of Palestine and Palestinians, and the recognition of the International Court of Justice that South Africa had a recognized dispute. They had standing with the court, I think, registers the global impact 
of what's happening there and also the legacy of apartheid and its identification with like the Goldstone report years back and other reports describing Palestine under Israeli occupation as a form of apartheid. So it's a kind of profound time for social justice movements and human rights movements. And the courts often though can be very disappointing in what they can deliver. Any final thoughts before we sign off on this today? And we'll be returning to it, of course. Well, I think the courts are typically disappointing, but here I've been inspired by both these lawsuits. They do what lawsuits can at their best do. They've organized a tremendous amount of evidence in coherent ways. They've made a point. They're moving public opinion and on a solid basis in a way that courts are uniquely equipped to do. And to tell a story on a bigger stage than would sometimes be available to particularly the marginalized and oppressed. That's true. Okay, thanks, Mike. This is Jan Hawken. And Mike Snedeker talking on the Left No Law today about the cases against Israel and Israel's genocide in Gaza, cases before the courts.